0: The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report here in Hong Kong today. Um, A big thank you, as always, to our production partner, Marketeers, um, and to our sponsors, The Bullet Group. Uh, I'm joined in Hong Kong today by Hotwire Global CEO, Barbara Bates. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, It's your first time, I think, on our podcast. Is that correct? It is. Good. Well, it's probably long overdue in that case. You've been Global CEO of Hotwire for how long now?
1: About a year and a half.
0: Okay, and there's been a reasonable amount of change, would you say, at Hotwire in that time? Yeah. Because you, you came in after a period of, I think, at least four or five years when when um, Brendan Craigie was in charge. It, it was very much a UK firm at that point. Um, you're obviously based in America. You yes. came from um, a US independent called Eastwick. Yes. Um, which Hotwire acquired. H- how has that change gone? Because it does feel to me like Hotwire is quite a different animal than what it was say two years ago.
1: Yeah, there, there actually has been quite a bit of change, but I also think we tried to be really smart about um, making sure we retained all the great things um, that Hotwire's been known for over the years. But there's a reason why they acquired a US firm like mm-hmm. Eastwick, definitely wanted much more emphasis on the US market. Um, For the type of work that we do what's good for the US market obviously trickles down to all the other regions That we work with Um, and we're we're in roughly 15 15 offices 11 countries Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, And so that that was probably the first big shift Mm. for the agency is to buy an agency of our size um, and and roll that under the hotwire brand sure And then I think the second, obviously, when when the acquisition took place, I was running North America. Um, And then the second, I think, big change was when I was named global CEO. So it was the first time that Hotwire had had a non-UK-based CEO. And again, I think that just underlies how important the US market is to to Hotwire's growth overall.
0: Mm, Okay, and how do you think the agency has changed um, from a kind of perspective of its model, I suppose, mm-hmm. over the last 18 months. Hotwire was one of the first agencies to use this phrase, the micro network. Is that something that's still important to you?
1: Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the things that's different, uh, the shift that I've sort of made since I've, um, I've taken leadership is... How I really was more of a network of regional offices mm. that sometimes worked on the same clients. Um, I would say now we're much more a global firm um, that service global accounts in a, a number of regions. Now, our regions do have local business themselves, um, but we're doing more work where we're involved with many countries. And um, that takes a different sort of approach, different skill set, um, and that's some of the changes that we've made in the last year and a half as well.
0: Mm, okay, so obviously you're, you're in North America. Yep. You have um, a, a pretty big London office yes. as well, uh, along with other offices in Europe. Yes. Spain, we're France.
1: Italy, Germany. We're in two, two different regions in Germany. Okay. Um, we're in Australia, Mexico City. Right. Um, We're actually in three offices in the U.S. now: Mm -hmm. New York, San Francisco, and uh, this last year we opened up Minneapolis.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Asia, of course, you're not quite in yet.
1: We are not um, in Asia. We partner Mm -hmm. in Asia. Um, We keep very close tabs on what's happening here. Um, We do uh, do some coordination work for some of our clients. Um, Obviously, we work very closely with folks in Singapore based on the work that we do in Australia. Um, We actually have a couple of partners here in Hong Kong and China uh, that we work closely with. But as the tech scene changes here, Mm -hmm. it's obviously important for us to stay very close to what's happening, especially in places like Shenzhen, Mm -hmm. um, very similar to the Palo Alto uh, of uh, the US market. and so, getting to know what the VC community is like there, um, what the startup scene looks like there, incredibly important to us. If, if you know, if we're to believe that the majority of the unicorns coming to the market will come out of China, obviously we we have an expertise to help with that. Mm.
0: Do you envisage? Uh, increasing your presence in Asia, whether by acquisition or by um, opening offices?
1: You know, we're looking at all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just there's nothing on the immediate horizon, but we're definitely paying attention. And I think the, the best way to look at it is we will be where we need to be um, to, to support our clients. Mm. And uh, today, most of our clients are technology-focused clients, whether they're B2B um, or even consumer tech uh, but we also see um, growth in working with what is traditionally non-tech companies mm-hmm. primarily because they want to be seen as a tech company so right. um, obviously I'm not the first person to you know make that claim that's pretty widely known but uh, we're definitely seeing it show up in the type of companies that uh, we're, we're working with and, and talking with these are not necessarily known for traditional you know being traditionally technology companies, but mm. they want to build value in their brand and demonstrating their innovation through technology, either disruption uh, or protection for mm. many of them, if they're the big legacy companies, uh, is definitely very high on their priority.
0: Mm. So if we were to assume you would, sorry, my chair is creaking, <laughs> I need to be careful here. If, if you, even if you were to Say expand in Asia. Presumably, it would be along the same lines as the model you already have. You you don't you have no desire, for example, to be in every single market, um, which is, I guess, the conventional network model that we see from the really big players.
1: Yeah, we don't need to do that. Mm. Um, we have some phenomenal partnerships. Um, I think the reason why, for us particularly, we don't need to do it is the way we we really do partner with. With other firms and you know you can talk to people some of our partners and they will tell you they feel part of hotwire um, they can use our branding wherever they want they're on our slack channels we invite them to our boot camps very transparent open relationships mm-hmm. and we do that primarily because it is what best serves the client
0: mm-hmm.
1: if, if our for example we don't have an office in amsterdam but we have one of our partners is in amsterdam Incredibly close working relationship. Probably seventy percent of her business is Hotwire mm-hmm. clients. Um, our clients wouldn't be able to tell you that she's not a Hotwire mm-hmm. uh, employee or right. Hotwire rent agency. They're very um, simpatico with yeah. with the way we we do business, and but that works for us.
0: You don't have a holding group, perhaps. Well, you do have a holding group. We do. But you don't have a holding group that perhaps is thinking they'd love all of that revenue to be yours?
1: No, I actually think it's less about that. It's more about, um, obviously, if it, if it makes good business sense mm-hmm. um, and there's some driving reason why it needs to be a you know wholly owned office, then we'll do that. They've proven that they've, they've done that. But most of, Hotwire's offices have been organically grown, mm. and um, I think that's one of the reasons why there. You walk into any Hotwire office, it feels like Hotwire. Um, and you know, I think right now we have growth opportunities with the in the regions that we're already in. So to put investment in new regions, I mm. think there'd have to be a really big driving reason why it would need to be us. Right. Yeah. I mean, um,
0: we look at some of these networks. With offices in every country, and you know, some of the some of the officers are just treading water, but taking up resource and time, and, and they investment. compete with each other, right? Of course, that's the, well. that is
1: that is a the driving, mm. okay, uh, reason I think that a lot of those that doesn't work is mm. time and time again you talk with people, um, who've come from those big networks, and they will tell you they don't know anybody in their other offices or they can't get someone to pick up a phone and help them because they need to see an internal PO before that happens. Mm. Um, That's all in service of the agency. That is not in service of the client. And I think fundamentally we just think if you do right by the client, you will do right by the agency.
0: Okay. And so do you think that's one of the main reasons why clients like the micro network model?
1: Yeah. Yes. I think they don't... First of all, I feel like they have... um, they're not held captive Mm. Um, I think they feel like there is a consistency of quality Um, and you know many times clients will tell you we were sold the network but the reality is you don't Mm. really have access to the network
0: right okay what else is it about the micro network that you feel um, maybe gives it some advantages versus a traditional MNC model uh,
1: you know I think General, I'm one of those people that I do believe size can be an advantage,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in this case, I think midsize is an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the big multi they have gotten so unwieldy that as this market has changed, they've had a very difficult time moving quick enough to change with the market. I don't have to, you know, disclose all the the headlines that we read on a regular basis about the challenges that they're having and I think when you get to that size and you're, you know, you're in so many regions and um, it, it's a challenge to, to, you know, keep pace with what's happening. So I do think mid agencies have an advantage. They, they have to have scale at some point, mm. um, but at some point scale can be the, the enemy as well.
0: Mm. Okay, so you can become just, just too big to succeed.
1: You know, that's my opinion. Hmm. That's, uh, you know, I'm just... Uh, you well, know, the numbers you look, bear that. Bear yeah, I mean, it's well. you just have to look at it and to see that there is, there's something broken with that model. Hmm. Um, I do think having presence in your top markets and where clients really need you to be, for you to understand that market, have, you know, enough of a footprint um, that you can represent them globally. But I also think we've had great success with partnerships. Mm. Um, that can be incredibly fruitful.
0: And how important is, is technology to that model? Yeah, um, I mean, do you think, for example, it, it would have been possible 15 years ago?
1: You know, it could have been possible. I think there's two things. I think there is uh, technology as an enabler is huge, probably because of where I've come from mm. um, and my background. I have always been a big uh, user of technology and how I run my business and what mm-hmm. I do. Um, but that was one of the changes that I made when I came into Hotwire. Is um, we don't have phones on our desks. We do all video calls. It's all mm-hmm. Zoom calls. We s- use Slack. We have Box or OneDrive mm-hmm. um, for all shared files. Um, we we have a fund we call Go Hotwire. That is not dependent on client budgets. It's an actual fund that sits separately um, that our staff can apply for going and working in other offices other Mm -hmm. regional offices they just have to make the business case for it and oftentimes the business case is i work on the global qualcomm account and i've never met you know or or the only time i see my qualcomm colleagues is at boot camp once a year and i'll talk about that in just a minute but um i want to go sit with the French team so that we can do annual strategic planning on more of a EMEA basis than just in our own regional office. Mm. Or, you know, I want to learn the U.S. market more. We've had a ton of people come to San Francisco this year because <laughs> of being, you know, in the heart of yeah. technology. Um, so that that kind of investment uh, sounds like, like a nice perk, but it's really good business. Mm. It's very... I if they can, you know, the smarter they are about other regions, the more talented they're going to be at running global accounts. Um, if they can connect with their colleagues, they're going to be willing to help each other out versus have this competitive nature. We have a one p and mentality, mm. so we don't have that, you need an internal PO before I can pick up the phone and call you mm. problem.
0: Okay. You talked about maybe something is broken with the big agency model. Do you think that goes for clients as well? Are there kinds of clients that you would kind of veer away from based on their size? And yeah,
1: their... it's interesting. I just had this conversation with somebody else. It's not that I would say clients are broken. I I think there's two things that are going on. I think if, um, if you're someone who's never been on the agency side and you don't know how the sausage is being made, um, you might be steps behind what's happening. Um, I do think the agency pace is much quicker and change happens much quicker. Sometimes clients who've been in-house for a very long time don't see that pace of change, so they're just behind the times. But I think the biggest thing that's broken about the client agency model is the financial relationship Mm. because The way clients feel comfortable paying agencies is time equals value. That's not reality. Mm -hmm. Time usually doesn't equal value. In fact, it has nothing to do with value. And so until clients are willing to look at a different remuneration uh, model and understand that it's actually not in their best interest to pay by the hour, um, then I think it's gonna be hard for things to change. So a great example is every survey you read from clients, and we do our own, clients want more strategy and more creativity. If you really look the way most communications agencies are paid on retainer, clients don't pay for creativity and strategy most of the time. Mm -hmm they pay for execution. That's what they're comfortable with. That's what the hourly timesheets. So we actually haven't, um, this was an Eastwick model that I brought over to Hotwire, is we bluntly say we do not uh, charge by the hour. We don't have hourly rates. Um, We do, one day I would hope to say that I got rid of timesheets, but we still have our staff do timesheets, mainly as a way to manage our pricing. Like, Mm Are we charging enough or are we charging too much mm-hmm. for um, the, you know, the work we do? But we don't do it by the hour. We basically look at what is the task we're being asked, asked to do? What is the program? What's the budget to do that? And we deliver within that budget. Okay. Um, and sometimes that means um, we, if you actually do the correlation, We're putting in more hours than we're getting paid for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes it means we're not.
0: Does this approach still work for retainers? It sounds quite like it's ideal for projects.
1: No, it works for retainers. It Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You have to be very specific about what you're going to be doing for that retainer. And Um, so...
0: Not every agency wants to be that specific.
1: Yeah, but I think that is what makes better client-agency relationships, is that transparency Mm -hmm. and... um, and basically, we've made an agreement. You, This is what you need to have accomplished. Here's what we will do to help you accomplish that. And here's how much it's going to cost. Hmm. Um, I think if you are wanting to sort of look at pricing as a black box, then I think that's when you run into challenges hmm. with, with clients. But um, I think for the most part, if you deliver, and you tell clients what it's going to take to deliver, they're willing to pay.
0: Mm. Okay. How have you found the shift from an agency like Eastwick, which was fiercely independent, to Hotwire, which is owned by uh, uh, Inero, which is listed on the Australian yeah. Stock Exchange, yeah. and Inero has had some well-publicized issues as well yes. in the last few years, so there's been a lot of corporate stuff yeah. going on. I mean, what That happened
1: before I was... It did. Yeah. It, it certainly yeah. did.
0: But what impact has it had on you moving from an environment where you really yeah. don't have anyone yeah. peering over your shoulder to uh, one I where mean, you do... I mean, I've
1: had a boss for the first time in 30 years, which everyone sort of uh, makes fun of Matt Melhuish about, oh my gosh, you poor guy, you have to actually have Barbara as. (laughs) Uh, You have to be Barbara's first boss in 30 years. But um, you know what, I have to say, I feel incredibly lucky. Um, I could have sold my agency 10 times over. Every big, you name the Mm -hmm. brand, if it's a tech agency, they um, came calling And, and not a big surprise. We'd been around a while, we had a strong brand, always worked with really great clients. Um, but I pretty much built Eastwick to be the anti big agency mm-hmm. and I could not really, I just didn't think there was values alignment when it comes down to it. I met incredibly amazing people along the way, but I just, the model did not work for me. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't dead set on selling the agency. Um, I had daughters that were in the business at the time and I thought, okay, maybe this is a family business. and. One day I'll retire and I'll pass the business on to them. Um, But then when Hotwire came calling for the first time, it made sense to me. There was a one plus one equals three. They were strong in Europe. We were strong in the U.S. They had tried to Mm -hmm. break into the U.S. not so successfully, to be perfectly frank. And um, I liked them. I liked their work. Our clients were very similar. So um, so was willing to have the conversation. Interestingly enough, the conversation with Hotwire was completely different than any other conversation that I'd had because typically, hi, Barbara, what's your revenue for the last three years and your EBITDA? I mean, they, that's exactly, it goes immediately to financials and wanting to know what you think you can grow your business. <laughs> It's charming. Yes, but it, it, seriously, it happened many, many times, where the conversation with Hotwire was much more about our approach, what, how you know, our philosophy for growth, how we um, serviced our clients, the culture that we were building. We talked about all of that for a very long time before we talked about financials, and for me, it was the first time where there was really a values alignment that. Mm. Um, we didn't agree on everything, but all the major important stuff we we agreed on. And that, when I agreed to be acquired, it was I was going to run North America. Mm. That was it. Uh, there was no plan mm-hmm. for me to take over the, the global company. That happened within you know the first six months. But um, I I think we're we're both you know a year and a half in, almost two years in. We're really happy. Actually, I take that back. Two years in, mm-hmm. um, I'm happy, they're happy. Um, I think it means it's it's different. It's They give me a lot of independence. Mm. Um, I feel like I more have a partnership with Enero than being managed by them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've done is I've gotten much more close closer to the other Enero agency. So we do a lot of collaboration now where that really didn't happen before. We have an mm. amazing research and insights agency that we partner with um, TLE, mm-hmm. creative firms, um, Naked and BMF, and so forth. So I feel like I have access to some really interesting skills and in scale, mm-hmm. um, and kind of, I pretty much get to run independently.
0: Mm. And how's, how was 2018 for you?
1: Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good growth. Yes. Good growth. Um, so our fiscal year is um, oh, yeah. July 1st. to So we just mm. wrapped up our first half of fiscal mm-hmm. 19 ahead of plan in every market. So going to knock on okay. wood there, seeing tremendous organic growth, which right. um, I think is something that a lot of agencies overlook Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I like it particularly because it means our clients like what we're doing um, and we're doing good work and developing more strategic relationships with them because we're deeper with Mm -hmm. them Um, our pipeline looks great business I know you know we all felt really strong about last year this year I think people were especially with Trump and all of that I mean, I made it through, how, minute, how long did I make it through before I actually mentioned his name? <laughs> you did well. <laughs>
0: we, we were doing so well. I know,
1: sorry. <laughs> um, and so, but I, I think, you know, still it all, all the sort of leading indicators look good.
0: Good. <laughs> it's great to hear.
1: Yeah. But, but it's there's still a sense of uncertainty, right? There is. Right?
0: There is. But it's good to hear that you had a good year, because honestly, I mean, you know, you you read our numbers and... It's not the case necessarily no, know. For, for, particularly at the bigger end of the spectrum, and that has a, a, a proportionate effect, of course, on the whole market. Yeah, When we yeah. talk about the whole market, the mid-size. I mean, it's harder, and...
1: obviously, I'm not naive enough to, to say that, you know, it's harder to grow mm-hmm. at that bigger level of course, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but when you do the math, I mean, we, you know, we have more, million-dollar-plus pieces of business today Mm. than we've ever had.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's... um, Yeah, it's encouraging to hear because it does seem like the midsize is perhaps leading the way, not just in terms of growth, but also in terms of innovation. Um, Do you feel like your sector focus on technology gives you an advantage?
1: Yeah, um, I do. You know, clients... Always say they want to work with experts, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's experts in their own market or experts in a certain discipline, which is why we invest also in, um, you know, one of the key initiatives for us is sector and um, service specialty. Mm-hmm. So we hire people who are auto tech, health tech, clean tech, um, security experts. Um, but we also hire people who are researchers, mm-hmm. that are you know creative strategists, that are digital experts, um, and you, I think that is a challenge for midsize agencies because you know when you can't hire a whole team of digital people mm-hmm. at once, you just have to hire the right level and seed that skill set within the organization in order for it to take off, to build up enough business that you can start hiring in. And I think we've learned that model pretty well over the last number of years. I mean, Eastwick had became an integrated firm in, 10 years ago. Mm, so right. we had to figure that out you know, quite a while ago, how to bring in that different skill set.
0: OK. Um, one of the things um, I'm always keen to ask about is the development of PR firms uh, on the West Coast. Yeah. And you know that market better than anyone. Yeah. How do you see that? I mean, it's, it still seems, from our perspective, like it's the same group of firms to some extent that are doing well out there. Do you see any changes both in, in the, the firms or even in the type of work?
1: yeah so i do think there's been some change mm-hmm. um i still think the big multinationals struggle mm-hmm. out there um i do think the mid there's a bunch of us that have been quite successful for some time out there but i also find that and this is a trend that i've been talking about i mean it's you know i'm not the only one talking about it but definitely seen it in the last um the last couple of years, which is the lines between type of agencies blurring. Mm. So, you know, we compete with digital firms, creative firms, you know, not just traditional PR firms or communications firms. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say there's still new firms popping up all the time mm. um, or firms moving into the Valley. We saw over the last couple of years, we saw quite a few European agencies open Mm -hmm. up shop um, in either We've seen some Australian companies coming into LA uh, European companies coming into San Francisco Mm -hmm. um, and there's always people spinning out from one of the bigger firms and and opening up shop, I think those a lot of those new agencies are very digitally focused Mm -hmm. Um, they have the PR talent but they also have you know a strong digital talent from the beginning mm. um, so that that's something that I've definitely seen okay I mean I think that cycle continues where um, and I, I think you guys just talked about this where yes last year a lot of the acquisition activity was within network it where was. they were yeah. um, bundling
0: Merck consolidating yes right? consolidating Merging. yes
1: yeah um, but I do think I've heard and starting to see another cycle of smaller agencies being acquired oh, again.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think there were there were more acquisitions as well last year, actual purchases. Yeah, last yeah, year.
1: yeah. So we're yeah the last, so I we're we're seeing that happen okay. again. They might be. I think maybe one change is they're being acquired smaller, probably. Yeah, they are.
0: Yeah,
1: and yeah. um
0: and also increasingly. The type of acquirer is changing. So it used to really only be holding groups. Yes. Right? But now sure. you see independence. Yes. And you also see private equity yes. more and more. Yep. Um, yeah. But is it still, do you still feel like the market in, on the West Coast is something of a bubble for the, for the PR industry? High salaries and, um, you know, in, in many cases, really strong growth for lots of
1: firms you know what I don't think it's a bubble okay I don't I really don't think it's a bubble I think it's kind of the new normal will there be fluctuations of course there is I mean you know I weathered the dot-bomb I weathered Mm -hmm. the financial crisis so I've seen I've seen it Um, I don't think I don't I don't feel like it's a bubble Mm -hmm. I feel like it is sort of the the new norm and I I do really believe that the tech market is only getting bigger mm-hmm. um, because of this idea that non-tech companies are mm-hmm. wanting to leverage tech and innovation to build value in their brand. So for example, we work with a company called United Rentals, which is the, uh, the North America's largest um, big equipment rental company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not very technology savvy marketplace, but they definitely see that technology can either disrupt their market, um, so think of like the uberization of big equipment rentals, or they also have a very tough time hiring skilled workers. Mm-hmm. So they have to use now technology to supplant those jobs that they can't fill. Right. And so all of a sudden it becomes, and and their shareholders are asking, you know, how are you leveraging technology? How are you innovating in your market?
0: Right. And so that kind of trend really helps an agency like yours, presumably. But is every company really a tech company? I mean, do you ever face a situation where you have to say to a a prospective client, okay, let's slow down here. Um, You're not Apple.
1: Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, it's interesting. So I mentioned I was just on vacation, so I did a lot of reading, and one of the books I read was *Bad Blood*. Mm, I read is, it too. Which is the story of <laughs> yeah. fascinating. Yeah, very good. Yes, um, and I think you see those situations where there was not really there there.
0: There was the tech wasn't there. No. Yeah.
1: No, and I think you know. Over the years, if you've been in Silicon Valley as long as I've had, you've seen you've seen that situation mm-hmm. before. Um, that doesn't happen very often. It's usually, you know, maybe the market isn't ready or the problem isn't big enough or whatever. It doesn't happen that often where somebody is really trying to push innovative technology that really isn't mm-hmm. innovative. Um, but, yeah, I think I think there are a lot of companies who get it, we call it, get um, over their skis. Right. And uh, that, that definitely happens. Yeah, but,
0: I mean, it's it's everyone, I mean, we, we see it all the time because we have companies telling us they're tech companies now.
1: Yeah. You know. But, you know, interestingly enough, I'm also surprised when I get examples of that. Mm. So we work with a um, Kubota tractor mm-hmm. company in the UK. We're a tech company. Mm. They specifically wanted to work with a tech company. Company. Um, There's a a handful of companies that we work with that are not tech technology companies, but because we understand that tech market, Mm -hmm. um, we provided a value that they needed. Mm -hmm. But you know, I in Minneapolis, most people think like, "Why are you in Minneapolis? It doesn't seem to be a big tech center." Mm. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize how many Fortune 100 companies are headquartered in Minneapolis. yeah. Target, Best Buy, United Health, 3M is an interesting company. Mm. Familiar with 3M? Yep. So, you wouldn't necessarily think of them as a technology company, yeah. but <clears throat> they now have, um, in their construction division, they now have uh, filters for your heating system, which they have sold for many, many years that now are IoT enabled, Mm. so that they can tell you your filter needs changing, this is what your oxygen, you know, carbon dioxide levels look like because of this. You know, it can be tied directly into an app that allows you to order that specific size filter. So things like that are being Mm -hmm. disrupted by technology.
0: So for those kinds of companies, you can see tech innovation um, as a real opportunity uh, in terms of how they position themselves um, and how they kind of build relationships with customers, for example. But for tech companies, it seems like innovation is sometimes a challenge. So on the one hand, you have the likes of Facebook, most obviously, facing numerous issues because perhaps it, it went too fast. Uh, and then you have um, you know big big companies. Um, suffering from, let's say, a cybersecurity breach. And so you have anxiety Mm -hmm. over the pace of innovation. How do you think companies are, I guess, grappling with those challenges?
1: I think that is at a heightened state right now. I mean, uh, so full disclosure, Facebook is a a client Mm -hmm. of ours. Um, And... We've been involved working with social networking companies for a very long time. And so the privacy issue has always been uh, an issue. And I think um, back in the early days, people were probably a bit naive about what all that meant. Mm. Um, And I think you're right when innovation happens incredibly fast and Behavioral changes don't keep pace, or policy doesn't keep pace, or um, that it can, you know, cause issues. I, I think if you look back in history, there's probably many examples where it's been in similar
0: mm-hmm.
1: situations. For example, early days of automobile, there wasn't the safety regulations, and you know, all those kinds of things, and that you know came about. So I think people are probably expecting that that stuff will will catch up. Hmm. Um, I hope so. Yeah, With self-driving cars. Yes, yeah, exactly, (laughs) yeah. So I do think there's a lot more at risk and I think people are getting more knowledgeable about the risk. So um, it's one of the reasons why security is one of the, you know, still one of the fastest growing, most heavily invested um, markets. We actually do quite a bit of work in the security space because um, it touches every company. Yeah, I can imagine.
0: Yeah. Well, Barbara, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's, it's been really interesting talking to you, and we'll try and get you back on the show. Great. In the not-too-distant future. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.